Welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. This episode is brought to you in association with Off the Shelf. Eleanor Brown presents White Ink Stains, a collection of poems exploring the lives of women. Hello, I'm Eleanor Brown and I'll be reading from my collection White Ink Stains. These poems were written in response to the Reading Sheffield Oral History Project. Around 65 audio interviews were conducted with people mainly born in the city between 1928 and 1945, the silent generation. Growing up without televisions, many were from homes without books and other cultural resources, often without disposable income for active cultural engagement. Some were from large working-class families, where the expectation was that they would leave full-time education aged 14 in order to get work and contribute financially to the household until they had one of their own. The interviewees were asked what they had read, what had mattered to them in the books they read, what they remembered from their reading and what they valued, how they felt it had affected their lives. Their answers were recorded and have been archived along with the transcripts and a wealth of subsequent research and documentation on the excellent and completely unique Reading Sheffield website. Coming soon is Mary Grover's book on the project as social history, Steel City Readers. This poem is called Representation. All small, poor, mousy, lonely, young, displaced or dispossessed, bookish, resentful, highly strung, ambitious, ardent, oppressed, acute, impatient, outspoken, shy, perceptive, hungry, mistreated, scrupulous, introspective, wry, morally overheated, avid, imaginative, plain, passionate, angry, clever girls are depending on you, Jane. Be Jane for us all forever. Most of the voices in my book are female because most of the interviewees were women, whose educational opportunities and expectations were even more circumscribed than those of their brothers. For those who couldn't afford to buy books, the public library was the only place they could access books to read for self-education or for pleasure, and public transport the only way to access the libraries. In the last 10 years of cruel, stupid austerity measures and local government funding cuts, nearly 800 public libraries have been closed across England, Scotland and Wales. This poem is called She's Going in an Office Like Her Daddy. My father was a clerk in a small steelworks. There was only the manager and him there until the manager's son came home from university. And then he was there too. A bit of a spare part, as they say. All he'd do, he'd go to the library over the road, come back with a big pile of books, sit with his feet up on the desk, reading them. I thought, I could do that. When I was very small, my mother walked me to the library a mile and a half each way and uphill home. One time I said, why don't we take a tram for the fun of it? But she was angry and sad. She said, no, we're walking. 
When I was 12, 13, and the manager was away, my father would take me into work. I'd sit and play on the beautiful, big old, black, imperial typewriter. I remember being taken into the forge with the hammers banging away, seeing the horses, writing just whatever I wanted. Twenty-two years a stockbroker's typist for love of that old imperial. And because one time I asked to take a tram home from the library, but Mother hadn't had the two pence for it. Not the penny halfpenny for herself, nor the half penny for me. Let's say you were lucky enough to pass your 11 plus, and your parents could afford you to buy you the uniform, the satchel, and the textbooks you would need to attend grammar school. And you worked very hard, and you got an interview at a university. That shows there was equality of opportunity, yes? No. Throughout the 1930s, an upsurge of very weird energy around discerning and defining good art and protecting it from contamination by bad art or something, led to a cohort of literature experts who were temple guardians, defenders of the real good against the fake good, gatekeepers, waiting to judge, shame, reject and exclude you. So you had to be prepared, or quick-witted, or culturally confident enough, to defend what you had read on the train on the way to the interview. I never read anything about my life, says the narrator of this poem, Appetite. Book-hungry teenage girl, great ravenous word-eating eyes, amazing stamina for nothing but to lie in bed and read, omnivorous of print, devouring gaze insatiable for all the big fat works, yes, all of Dickens, Eliot and James, now Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Zola, Proust, keep it up, gents, and ladies, churn it out, as long as I'm pupating in my bed, sixteen years old with nothing else to do, there's no leviathan of literature I'll be defeated by. No beer moth of books can make me say too much for me. Something got into me that can't get out. Something got hold of me that won't let go. So let's say you jump through all the hoops that are there for everyone and some extra hoops that are just for people like you. And you get the golden ticket, or the owl post, to an elite university. What if you arrive to find a syllabus that ignores you, an environment that oppresses you, art that offends or excludes you, architecture that intimidates and alienates you, and a history that erases yours? This young grammar schoolboy, the first in his family to attend university, is initially completely dazzled by the beauty and opulence, the immense cultural capital on display in the Codrington Library of All Souls College, Oxford. The poem is called Blood Sugar. No one gave him a scallop shell or scrip of anything. He worked long years for this. He'll take his A's his hard-earned scholarship, his knotted hanky full of prejudice, 
and seek for truth among the pleasant groves of Academe. Epistles, Horace. Art hangs in those trees like fruit. Like geese in droves, ideas fill those lanes. His gritstone heart softens to each blithe spirit their chance met, each punting lutenist, each well-read youth, each fortune-favoured lightfoot lad. And yet, although all Oxford knows beauty is truth and truth is beauty, Sheffield says not quite. Sheffield wonders with Brecht, of what is built the Palace of Culture? Such a golden white, honey on yoghurt, syrup on cream, gilt tears not worth spilling on milk spilt long ago. The temple of learning glows like toffee ice or sugar, raw cane sugar. When you know truth about beauty, then you question price. Maybe you didn't have the energy or the confidence for that fight. Maybe you accepted that literature belonged in the ivory tower and only certain people, not people like you, were equipped and qualified to say what was good and bad, what was literature and what was just popular fiction, what was poetry and what was just verse, or just words, or just noise. What were fit subjects for writing about and what were not? Maybe you decided to leave it to them and get on with your life. And maybe you found that despite all this, reading was still somehow central, somehow essential to you, like something you needed to survive. This poem is called A Tragedy on Every Page. When I was at junior school, we'd got a very far-seeing teacher. She had a little library, and we used to borrow those books from her bookshelf. We were supposed to write a commentary about what we thought. Swallows and Amazons, and the William books, the Katie books, and Anne of Green Gables. When I was 22 and married, we rented a part-furnished cottage out in Derbyshire. It was an hour's walk to the nearest bus stop, but the mobile library would come right out to all those isolated places. I can't remember any of the titles, but I remember this one and it was really tragic. My husband came home from work and says to me, who's upset you? Who's upset you? When they were wanting to train mature people for teaching, I'd still got a little boy, hadn't I? The one born later than the others. And my mother went mad. You've got three children here and there you are going to college. I thought, mother, I'm nearly 45. I decided to do this A-level in English literature. I sort of got that thirst for knowledge again. When I went up to the college, I was nearly up the wall. I was so frustrated. I was getting... My mind was working on the wrong things, in a black hole. I'd be putting the washing in the washing machine, thinking, now, he says this essay's got to have a good start, a wholesome middle, and a good end. 
I'd be planning it in my head and my mind worked. It was life-saving that. Well, it didn't do my marriage any good, but it kept me sane. This is George Orwell writing in the 1930s. Sheffield could justly claim to be called the ugliest town in the old world. When you contemplate such ugliness as this, there are two questions that strike you. First, is it inevitable? Secondly, does it matter? The industrial towns of the north are ugly because they happen to have been built at a time when everyone was too busy making money to think about anything else. And the poem I'll read next charts the political awakening of a Sheffield schoolboy on first encountering Orwell's writing. It's called Heroes 2. Biggles and Sapper, Bulldog Drummond. Wait, fascist alert, 6-6 six, six in stocking feet, fit as a butcher's dog, all round good eh? crack shot, an artist in the boxing ring, shoulders worth two of any rowing eight. But ten-year-olds don't question what they read. Best thing they ever said to me at school? Right, gentlemen, we've got a spare half hour. Whoever has a book may read at will. Some of my mates thought I was slightly weird. That followed me to work. About 13, I saw that I were on a different course. Hank Jansen was the books you shouldn't read and some of lads would bring him in from home. Whoa, look at this, she slunk in and he caught a glimpse of silken thigh. That sort of stuff. I don't know that I did enjoy them much. I don't think they were written all that well. A lot of what we read in school, I mean, the classroom map was half pink at that time and books with heroes quelling natives hopped the values of Great Britain and all that. Completely propagandised at 13. We were the greatest nation on God's earth. The Road to Wigan Pier. That was the book opened my eyes because he was describing conditions we were born in. And for me, that was the dawnings of, this isn't right. We shouldn't live like this and let it be dressed up as duty or as destiny. But they knocked down the back-to-back -back slums, the dirty old steel mills closed, the fires were quenched in the forges. No more venal ugliness to protest here then. Well, the first live event I attended since lockdown was titled Black Art Matters. It was a peaceful protest against racism in the arts and a performance showcase of spoken word poetry and contemporary dance, organised by Nathan Gearing. At the start of this important free cultural event in Crucible Square, a cherry picker drives up to the entrance of the Crucible Theatre. For the next hour, it steadily drowns out every speaker and performer with sustained loud engine noise and intermittent loud beeping. Why? Long banner posters are going up on the theatre's facade. From each banner, a much larger than life-size snooker player looks out over the artists performing in the public square below. Each man's waistcoat bears the badge of the sport's corporate sponsor, a bookmaker. 
Gearing has to politely ask the billposting team to stop for a couple of minutes and switch off the machine's engine so that poet Otis Mensah's set can be heard. Sheffield Theatres. Too busy making money to think about anything else. And the noise of snooker being advertised drowns out the political protest and performance art, the free, live, public, cultural happening right there and then. Orwell might still ask, is this ugliness inevitable? Does it matter? Many of the interviewees in the Reading Sheffield project said the only books they owned when young were gifts, often from aunts who took an active, generous interest in their cultural education. So let's return now to our young, silent Gen reader. Let's say she survived school and World War II, maybe she's entered working life now, and one weekend in the mid-1950s, her favourite aunt, maybe a teacher, takes her to the theatre as a special treat. What will they encounter? Playwright Terence Rattigan's contemptuous caricaturing of his typical theatre-goer. A nice, respectable, middle-class, middle-aged maiden lady with time on her hands and the money to help her pass it. She enjoys pictures, books, music and the theatre, and though to none of these arts does she bring much knowledge or discernment, at least she does know what she likes. Let us call her Aunt Edna. The speaker in this next poem begins with a piece of verse she found at some point in her self-directed reading journey, which she copied down and kept for the rest of her life. And it's called, This is My Own Bit of Thing. I've travelled the world twice over, met famous saints and sinners, poets and artists, kings and queens, all stars and hopeful beginners. I've been where no one's been before, learned secrets from writers and cooks, always on a library ticket to the wonderful world of books. These are some poems I've written. Some are remembered or found, some we would chant in the classroom, some in the playground. Some that the high wind scribbled across the fretful sky when I ran and ran on the moor, not knowing why. Some in the slanting script of my lifelong friend, the rain. One I wrote in my breath on a window pane. Many that I discovered alone in Porter Clough. Some among mother's recipes, not enough. Carefully penciled, then inked, in her scrupulous schoolgirl hand, tucked between pickles and pies in no man's land. And I think that an education is not knowing facts from a book. It's knowing what you're looking for and how to look. Dawn break through the leaves in Rivelin. Cloud rift at Stanage Edge. A bumblebee on a dry stone wall. Wrens in a hedge. Limitless, changeable moorland skies. That's the heaven for me. But if I did have to be shut in, a good library. I spent over a year listening to the recorded testimony of people talking about how formative, nourishing, sustaining, how necessary literature had been in their lives. 
For the most part, they had not had it handed to them on a plate. They were not from culturally or educationally privileged circumstances. The more I attended to their accounts and to the music and energy of their voices, the more I wondered why the 20th century British cultural establishment and its gatekeepers were so hostile to ordinary readers and consumers of literature and art. This question was Mary Grover's jumping off point for the entire Reading Sheffield project, and she addresses it further in her forthcoming book, Steel City Readers. Why was it the business of a generation of academics to tell people they didn't know what to read and they didn't know how to read it? Who thought silly labels such as highbrow, middlebrow and lowbrow were useful? And why? Why was it the business of playwrights to nickname and insult their audience members? Why are some voices and experiences so absent from poetry then and now? Is this ugliness inevitable? Does it matter? And the next poem is called Good Smells. Father kept chickens and mother took in lodgers. We weren't very well off then at all. Humpty Dumpty smells of raw grain. She popped me in a tram and took me to the store's school. They had to sell up the family phone. The little red hen smells of iron filings. Started in the 17th century, there was no way we could make a living. In the war, the teacher came round our houses. Four or five of us went up to the fishmongers on Greystones Road. They had more room there. Alice's adventures in Wonderland smell of mackerel. I think we did more reading because on a dark night you couldn't go out to play. The Forsyte saga smells of cottage pie. He liked his morning telegraph. She knitted. I wanted to be a librarian. I don't know why I changed my mind. We did Merchant of Venice. I must say, I understand about the pound of flesh. Now. We didn't have a bookcase, just a thing, a bookrest, a shelf. Il Penseroso and the other one, L'Allegro, smells of pink carbolic soap. Posh universities needed you to have Latin to study modern social science. Sheffield were the only one would have me. The beverage report smells of the warm vinegar breath of the West Street chip shops. Well, here we are in 2020 and the publishing industry is called to account for its overwhelming whiteness and its ongoing failing of black authors and all readers. A study based on more than 100 interviews with authors, agents and publishing staff finds that, quote, the majority of publishing continues to cater for what it sees as a core audience of white middle-class readers. One respondent is more specific. A sort of 50-something middle-class to upper-middle-class white woman who reads a lot because she has time and she has resources to spend on books. Please notice this. Rattigan's 1953 figment, Aunt Edna, is still being invoked today to explain and excuse the laziness, 
the prejudice, the conscious and unconscious bias, and the outright discrimination of an entire cultural industry. The imaginary scapegoat is, still, a white middle-aged woman with spare time and spare money. She is still judged to be useful, even indispensable, as a passive paying audience member, as a purchaser and consumer of novels, poetry and drama. But nobody likes her or cares what she thinks. We can still just make a set of assumptions about that. She can take all the blame for everything that is wrong in publishing and the arts. And because blaming a fictional character for something changes nothing, it can go on being business as usual. This poem is called Honeymoon. Married in 1948, I had the most exquisite nightdress, sort of like a Greek goddess, and dressing gown to match. They were the loveliest things I'd ever owned. During the weeks before the wedding, I'd unwrap them from their tissue paper, hold them up against myself and slowly sway a sideways figure of eight. Didn't have a full-length looking glass and didn't dare steal to my parents' room to look in theirs. We went away on honeymoon. The boat to France and then by train to Switzerland, I hadn't brought enough to read. A kind lady lent me a silly magazine. The actress Lana Turner, 28, was married for the fourth time. Her trousseau reported to have cost £10,000. I gazed out of the window doing sums. How many pairs of stockings must she have? How many night dresses and dressing gowns? My husband hadn't long been back from war and sort of totally exhausted, so he slept a lot in the warm weather. Well, and I was very bored. But luckily, luckily, in this little Swiss hotel, there were a few English books. I was so pleased to have them. I'd have read anything. Always somebody worse off than you in a Thomas Hardy. Nobody says, pack enough books to last the honeymoon. If you don't speak, you can't be heard. The silent generation certainly didn't talk enough about a lot of things that do need talking about. But if you do speak up and still are not heard, like the artists at the Black Art Matters protest, then that is a whole different issue and one that does have real life consequences. The recent Cumberledge report into the vaginal mesh scandal found damning evidence that an arrogant prevailing medical culture minimised and disregarded women's accounts of the actual pain, the bodily damage and the mental and emotional distress they experienced. They did speak, but they were not heard. I hoped, in white ink stains, to find a respectful way to centre the voices of people who shared deeply personal stories with the Reading Sheffield Project. This last poem, Bleedwort, is for those who suffered, and still suffer, in silence. We are field poppy, thunderflower, cornrows, common and widespread, 
Corn poppy, clutchmorn, coquelico, not of conservation concern. Common poppy, red weed, headwork. Our habitat is anywhere disturbed, papava reus, paper rose. In barley fields, battlefields, roadsides, bleed what, bloodroot, bleed word. On any wasteland, red poppy, Flanders poppy, headache, we're a weed. We are a proud, bright red, abundant annual weed. So many among the wheat, we might be mistaken for a crop. But in cornfields, battlefields, roadsides, wasteland and other disturbed places, we are red weed, bleed word, common poppy. Being, we sing. Nothing being lacks its song. Song of the wind in the poppies, petals creased in the bud, like the letter she made a fist round when it came back unread. Song of the wind in the petals, crumpled flags in the field, song of the seventh magpie, a secret not to be told. Song of the wind on the seed pods, a dry whisper within of songs that are too soon ended or never begin. We are the never were. We are children who only might have been, dream children of the spinster aunts and lost or killed or broken men. Leaves once or twice pinnately lobed, the petals crumpled in the bud, an inkling on the edge of sleep. Four rounded petals bright as blood. The showy scarlet flowers nod on slender greyish hirsute stalks, abundant on the roadsides where they took their evening courtship walks. Papery petals overlap, a dark blotch often at the base. His head wound stained the bandages, her loss forever bruised her face. The male parts numerous, black anthers borne on thin black filaments. The stigma, darkly open mouth of disappointed innocence. Flowers appear in June, July. So red the fields it seems a rush of blood. And after harvest time, between sheared stalks, a second flush. Anthers dehiss while still in bud. Self-pollination can occur. One plant produce four hundred blooms. She dreamed of five who never were. He closed his eyes and dreamed of her. In bloom the two free sepals fall. The crumpled scarlet petals spread. The fruit a smooth and hairless globe. The black seeds ripen and are shed to sleep a painless poppy sleep, but dream a vivid poppy dream of fallen men and maiden aunts and all their children and all their children might have been. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.